Settle In Podcasters. Today we've got for you a wide-ranging yarn with Stephen Hopper about a career in taxonomy. He'll also be talking about totems, an idea that Indigenous totems can be a part of a good life. University of Western Australia Winthrop Professor Stephen Hopper was employed as Western Australia's first flora conservation research officer in 1977. With this hands-on background in the megabiodiverse region of the southwest of Western Australia, he gained a Fulbright scholarship in 1990 to the University of Georgia and was Miller Visiting Research Professor at the University of California, Berkeley, working on granite outcrop plant life which continues as a research interest now. He became director of Kings Park and the Botanic Gardens in Western Australia from 1992 to 1999 and was chief executive officer of the Botanic Gardens and Parks Authority from 1999 to 2004. He was foundation professor of plant conservation biology at the University of Western Australia for 2004 to 2006 and Director, CEO and Chief Scientist of Royal Botanic Gardens Q, London from 2006 to 2012. He's a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering. He's a Fellow of the Linnaean Society of London and he is a Companion of the Order of Australia. His current research interests are in old, climatically buffered, infertile landscapes around Albany and in the southwest of Western Australia where he currently lives. Stephen has been assigned six totems by the Noongar people of southwestern Western Australia, and he'll talk to us about them in the second of this pair of podcasts. Today's podcast is with Stephen Hopper, and Stephen has a long career in Western Australia and with Kew Gardens and with the Kings Park Botanical Gardens in Western Australia, and we're really excited to have you join us here, Steve. Thanks, Duncan. With a stellar career in taxonomy and in research management and taxonomy management and evolutionary biology in general, it's interesting too for us to get a sense of where you've come in that journey and also how that business works and also one of your particular passions is the idea that people adopt a totem. That's something we'll try and cover in this podcast. And we'd like to also get some comments on where the world's going in terms of taxonomy and conservation management. So that's perhaps where we're head with this interview. I note that you have an interest in rock orchids. Um, I grew up in the northeast of Tasmania and uh, uh, Doctrilia striolata is a rock orchid from Mount Cameron in the northeast of Tasmania. And I remember wandering around the, the mountains at flowering time to see these as a special part of the landscape where I grew up. How did you get an interest in rock orchids? Well, it's not actually rock orchids <laughs> because uh, there's a dearth of them in southwestern Australia. In fact, there's none. So I became interested in um, ground orchids. Uh-huh. When I was doing honours at UWA in, in 1973, my honours project was primarily focused on natural hybridisation in kangaroo paws, but I also was alerted to hybrids in the genus Caledonia. So I incorporated a, a brief morphometric study of those in my honours course, and uh, that got me going on orchids, I guess, and I... Uh, joined the, the local native orchid uh, study and conservation group and eventually spent a couple of decades working on the taxonomy of, the, of that group because uh, it turned out there was a plethora of undescribed species right at the, the back door almost in Perth and then further beyond in the southwest Australian floristic region. So can you give us a bit of a feel for Caledonia as a species? Is it, it's a, a ground orchid. What's its major pollinators? Yeah, Caledonia it is, and they're called spider orchids, fairy orchids, dragon orchids. They, uh, they're pollinated by a range of native bees, but also there's a, there's a big number of them that are pollinated by flower wasps or thinned wasps. These are... Southern Hemisphere 
wasps that have winged males and flightless females. And quite an interesting biology. The females burrow underground and parasitise beetle larvae. When they're ready to mate, they uh, come up to the surface and get up about 30 centimetres off the off the deck and emit a pheromone, which the male picks up downwind and approaches with ever-decreasing zigs and zags. <laughs> and, um, they mate in flight and then uh, have a nuptial feed of nectar. Um, and what the Caledonias have have a, a wonderful array of species that display the, the evolution of that remarkable system where the most specialised of Caledonias basically just look like a female wasp and they deceive the males into into thinking it's a real female and uh-huh. in the process of trying to fly away with the pseudo-female, the, the male is, is banged against the pollinia, picks up pollen and deposits pollen. So it's, it's a, a remarkable system and one that's now being extensively studied doesn't take much in most biological systems to to get into the really interesting detail and they sound like a, a very interesting group to be working with. In terms of the kangaroo paw, what are the pollinators of kangaroo paw? Well, kangaroo paws are predominantly birds, honey eaters, but uh, we have a little bit of evidence that honey possums also play a role. Uh, that's very, very poorly investigated. So I I uh, worked on kangaroo paws on a PhD after the honours year at UWA and because they're a great little group then they were known to be uh, 10 described species all endemic to the southwest of Western Australia and um, they're relatively easy, easy to grow in cultivation so they proved to be a good experimental group to test ideas about the origin of species in, in the incredibly species-rich southwest, and that was the, the thrust of my PhD. That included studies of honey eaters feeding on them, and the red and green kangaroo paw is probably well known. It's West Australia's floral emblem, and it's pollinated by honey eaters perching on the stem just below the flowers and probing for nectar. There are also several species and subspecies that have much shorter stems and are pollinated by honey eaters standing on the ground and feeding on flowers. So I've been quite interested in that evolution of evolutionary system, if you like, how, which came first, was it ground feeding or perch feeding? And how can we get at that question? Hmm. That intimate relationship with quite a different pollinator in the evolution of the kangaroo paws then. Absolutely, Duncan. Yep. This has been an interesting set of pursuing your curiosities can you give us a feel for what it takes to become a taxonomist and the skills that somebody might need to think about developing if they if they wanted to be a person who was interested in describing species with with the groups that i've had had an interest in the third major group has been eucalypts and i'm a field biologist and so just uh that that's helpful for for a, for a taxonomist these days, in fact, I would argue essential. And, you know, in, in places where there are undescribed species, it's not too long before you encounter things that don't match anything in the in the books. So that happened to be with, in my PhD with the kangaroo paws. There was a small species up near Kalbarri in Kalbarri National Park that didn't seem to match any known species. And that was my very first species I described. Um, under the guidance of Alex George at the West Australian Herbarium at the time. Sorry, what was that species of? Uh, it was of of the kangaroo paw, so the genus is yep. Anigoxanthos, and I, I chose the name Calbariensis, meaning dweller of Calbarri National Park. Okay. Or the species epithet. Taxonomy comes out of uh, the fundamental human need to express in language recognition of different kinds of things. You know, the, the discipline, I guess, came out of the days when plants formed the predominant medicines. Botany and taxonomy was taught in medical schools in Europe uh, for, for several centuries. Out of that began the, the, this great grand science quest to try and name the world's flora and, uh, and fauna. And 
I guess, Linnaeus helped crystallise that in his promotion of the binomial system, uh, you know, having just a genus name and a species name. That immediately took hold because before that, each species was described in a rather unwieldy sentence, <laughs> which made mm. it difficult to catalogue the data and all that sort of thing. That really is an important stepping stone in, in getting a grip on all of life on Earth. Yeah, it really was. Linnaeus didn't invent it, but he was the most prolific um, user and promoter of binomial uh, nomenclature. It's often, people often um, believe he invented it, but other people came up with the idea. He was a teacher, a good teacher, and he found walking his students around in the field looking at plants uh, was rather cumbersome to come out when a student says, what's this blue flower thing? And he has to come out with a, <laughs> a sentence in Latin to give uh, the name for it. So he needed a shorthand, um, and, <laughs> and that's right. essentially the origin of it. And it's it's served um, uh, the world uh, very well since, as you, as you say. So to be a to be a taxonomist, it's it's it, the natural curiosity that I, I think most people have, certainly when they're kids, about the world around them. We all can recognise different kinds of organisms. Some are right in our face every day, like birds and, and plants. Others are a little harder sometimes to find. But we, we do need a, a system of naming. Taxonomists are really those scientists who have made a profession out of formally classifying and identifying different kinds of organisms, different species, usually. The skills that you need to be a taxonomist in terms of making it a profession, is it a sense of detailed observation? Is that native or can you train yourself to do those things? Uh, you, you can train yourself. Meticulous attention to detail is, is part of the toolkit in all science and, and taxonomy is no exception. You get better at it the longer you're in the game, so to speak. So yeah. one of the... Um, Advantages and joys of it, I guess, is you never stop learning nor um, once you're a taxonomist, it's very hard to shake. I'm, I'm not aware of too many taxonomists who on retirement ceased the activity. <laughs> right. Job for life. Yeah, that's right. But naturally, there, as a science, it's, it's evolved and there are different traditions in taxonomy. I, I boil them down to two major approaches which my predecessor at, at Kew, Sir Joseph Hooker, played a role um, in his in his correspondence with Charles Darwin. The, the two of them really epitomise two different approaches to taxonomy. So Hooker was my one of my predecessors at Kew, and he uh, uh, was a primary scientific confidant of Charles Darwin, and those two gentlemen epitomised the two major approaches in taxonomy that I teach my students and, and try and boil down species concepts into their their practice. Um, so Hooker was a herbarium-based taxonomist at Kew, and he argued that people should only name species if they have access to good quality specimens from many countries. People who don't should send their specimens to large herbaria like that and allow the real experts to to get on with the naming of species. And he was very prolific in that regard. I think he named something like 12,000 new species of plants during his wow. very long, and, illustrious career. And that was uh, from specimens that were contributed to Kew. Correct. And so this he, is in the 1850s? 1850s. Through, he lived right through to 1910. He was 90 years old when he died, mm. or a little older than that. He based his species concept entirely on the on the herbarium specimens. If you couldn't distinguish them in the herbaria, he wouldn't name new species. He also had the view that if a single intermediate between two very clearly distinguishable forms existed, they were conspecific. He, he wouldn't name two species. He would name uh, name them as one, perhaps varieties of one species. Right. And that's okay. That system works well as long as you've only got one taxonomist doing it. <laughs> so okay. you get another one who... You know, the science, the rigour is there in examining specimens and meticulously describing them, but deciding where the breaks in nature are and at what level you're going to name the breaks in nature is is um, internalised and therefore subject to alternative interpretations. 
So as soon as you get two taxonomists doing the same thing, looking at the herbarium, at, even at the same specimens, quite often you could get one guy naming new species, another guy naming uh, not naming new species. And Darwin introduced, he was fundamentally responsible for the biological species concept, and that concept argues that certainly look at morphology, as in specimens in museums and herbaria, but there's a, there's a whole host of other evidence you can also marshal, and the criterion for recognising species should be their reproductive continuity or not. Can they mate with each other and produce viable offspring? So he published a, a beautiful paper in about 1865 on a very uh, long argument about primroses and cowslips in Europe. So people like Linnaeus, who was a herbarium taxonomist, argued that they were the same, just varieties of the same species. They do hybridise occasionally in the wild. Other people, including Charles Darwin's taxonomy teacher, John Stevens Henslow, also agreed with, with Linnaeus. You know, they were varieties because they produced the occasional intermediates. Uh, whereas James Edward Smith, who ended up purchasing Linnaeus's herbarium when Linnaeus died, and it became part of the Linnaean Society collection in London, argued uh, that no, that uh, even though they hybridised, they appear to be reproductively distinct. And Darwin just uh, really nailed that biological approach by growing both species in his glasshouse at Down, Downhouse, by experimentally hybridising cowslips and primroses, proving that the plants in the wild match in morphology experimental hybrids, uh, but also counting seeds and, and demonstrating that the hybrids were almost completely sterile. Okay. And, uh, so he argued that while there's a little bit of messing on, <laughs> Uh, around going on, um, by and large, these things are reproductively isolated. They have a separate evolutionary path, and therefore they're good species. So that the Darwinian approach versus the Hookerian approach. Hookerian approach is commonly called the taxonomic species concept, and the Darwinian approach is the biological species concept. The Darwinian approach sounds like it's a, a longer approach. Indeed. When I did my PhD, I, I followed exactly what Darwin did with primroses and cowslips. I experimentally hybridised various kangaroo paw species and uh, grew hybrids if they did produce hybrids and germinated them and then looked at pollen fertility and seed fertility. These days, however, we well, since the middle 90s, we've had DNA. And DNA sequencing enables you to get straight at the genome of organisms by uh, sequencing DNA, you get an immediate test as to whether they have substantial or minor or no genetic divergence. So it's a very rapid survey technique mm. and low cost these days. So um, it's more or less routine that people, when they describe new species, would sample at least a few individuals and establish their genetic relationships that way. So no longer is it a a long and tedious process. In fact, rarely do people do the Darwinian thing of experimental cross-pollination and that sort of thing. It's most new species these days are described by initial morphological signals and then uh, DNA tests for genetic divergence. Right. So getting a sense of the skills required to be a taxonomist from the outdoor skills and curiosity and being a field biologist as an important foundation and that sense of curiosity and wonder, the drawing and observation and these species description, they also all result in a paper of some sort. So scientific writing has been a feature of Darwin and Hooker and yourself. Uh, correct, yeah. And taxonomy is, is quite remarkable in that in both plants and animals and fungi, algae, there have been international conventions that have met every six years or so in botany. A rule set was established for the naming of things. So when Darwin and Hooker were around, there was no rule set. <laughs> right. And uh, so that, that it became force of personality almost as to who you followed uh, since most, most people then were working as herbarium or museum morphological taxonomists and lots of disagreements consequent uh, upon that. 
but the need for a standard rule set. So one of the fundamental rules in both zoological and botanical nomenclature is that the rule of priority, that is the person who first validly describes a species and applies a name, that name will be used. There are ways around that, but it's quite quite difficult to vary that, that rule. You know, there's a host of other uh, minor rules. In fact, each, each of the codes, as they're called, the, the International Codes of Nomenclature, amount to a book these days produced after the six-yearly meeting in the case of botany. Fairly dramatic changes occurred recently in, in botany until uh, I think the last international meeting or the one before, you had to apply a Latin diagnosis to your species description. That was uh, a way of keeping <laughs> keeping the description of species into at least the club of people who could secure a Latin diagnosis. But now you can describe species in your your language, any language, provided you otherwise follow the code. So, you know, it's become a little bit easier, in fact, uh, to describe species. You don't have to be a Latin scholar these days, although it really does help because in choosing names, uh, the names are usually Latin or Greek. You know, you, you need some feel for those languages to understand the names that people have chosen in the past and indeed to apply new names. So the, this new system of, of rules, is there a way that a person, an amateur or somebody who is a budding taxonomist could access those rules and understand them? Or uh, how, how complex is it to understand that thick rule book? Um, well, that's, that's quite a specialty. But amateurs play a really important role in discovering and naming new species. Those who are keen enough to want to name species, uh, I would just encourage them to go to their local museum or herbarium and express that desire and seek guidance from the, the people who are employed in those institutions to uh, in taxonomy. It becomes messy <laughs> when people embark upon doing this stuff uh, without that guidance. You know, often key literature can be overlooked, for example, and they end up describing things that have already been described. It's one of the pitfalls for young players. You have to base your description around what's called a type specimen. So that becomes, if you like, the gold standard bar for the name applied. So you have to have a good understanding of what has already been described in the group you're working on. And that means looking these days, fortunately, up on the web often, you can see the type specimen images through uh, some global programs that have been underway in the last couple of decades. In the bad old days, you had to secure a loan of specimens, including the types, to understand what had what types existed and what names applied to them. So it, it's become a bit easier. I'd encourage anyone with an interest in natural history to, particularly in places like Australia, where we have just so much more to do in taxonomy, um, even in the flowering plants, which you, you might think should be well and truly done by now. In WA, for example, we estimate about 14, 15% of the species in the flora in the wild is still to be named formally by taxonomists. Right, so that's a fairly high proportion in comparison to the rest of life, say the insects and other taxa. Well, in terms of mammals and birds and, you know, the vertebrates, oh, yeah. certainly, but if you really want to get into unknown stuff, then just invertebrates are where you can have a field day. You know, there, there's obviously groups like butterflies that have attracted a lot of attention and the, some of the more colourful beetles, but invertebrates are in much a much poorer state, in fact, than um, flowering plants. And uh, fungi are another huge group that are really understudied in terms of taxonomy. Yeah, and the potential benefits of those things too, I guess. Uh, in the balance of doing things for the sake of doing things and doing them for some potential human benefit, the kangaroo paws have become a, a popular ornamental species in your life. It, it, was that ever part of your motivation? It wasn't a central focus, but because I, particularly because I was hybridising 
to uh, try and work out species relationships and species uh, to recognise, some quite colourful individuals emerged and most of the, the really colourful kangaroo paws are susceptible to a disease called ink spot, a rust disease. And uh, so effectively they only function as, as annuals or biennials at best in cultivation. But the evergreen kangaroo paw, Anacosanthus flavidus, will live for 30, 40, 50 years. And unfortunately, mostly its flowers are a relatively uniform greenish yellow. <laughs> Uh, so nowhere near as spectacular as the red and green kangaroo, for right. example. So when I was starting my PhD in the 1970s, um, people were hybridising um, uh, onto Anacosanthus flavitus and then cloning uh, interesting-looking hybrids. To get the uh, longevity, that was. To get both the longevity and the stability and morphological form. So hybrids you know, if you get seed off hybrids, then often you'll get a, a range of progeny from that that vary from almost from one parent to the other. If you can clone the hybrid, then you get a, an exact genetic replica of what you're looking at. And tissue culture had just been become commonplace then uh, for agricultural crops mostly. And that uh, turned out the kangaroo paws were readily tissue cultured. So... <laughs> Some of the hybrids that I uh, generated to explore the evolutionary relationships uh, were released commercially by uh, people in Canberra, actually, who had an interest in it, as cultivars, they're called. Uh, some of them are now worldwide. You know, I spent time in California in my career and in gardens over there. To my amazement, I came across uh, Red Cross is one of the cultivar names applied to one of the hybrids I generated, and Regal Claw was another one. And they were, for example, in Stribing Arboretum in San Francisco when I uh, was there in 1990. So, <laughs> so they had become part of the international horticultural trade, yeah. Commercial trade, that's good. So it can be part of the motivation is uh, is the commercial, but uh, there's also the, the general quest for understanding as an important motivation. Just um, while I'm... Um, just discussing a career in science, writing is important. Uh, I wonder if you could just give us a bit of an insight into your approach to writing. Uh, sure, I, I really enjoy writing, and uh, scientific writing is a is a skill that we try and encourage with the university students very much these days through um, uh, undergraduate years, um, getting students used to reading primary scientific literature, understanding the, the fundamentals of a, of a conventional scientific paper with you know, title, uh, author, abstract, introduction that summarises uh, what is known, what's not, not known, and what the key question or hypothesis being investigated is, then materials and methods, results, discussion and conclusions and references. So there, there is this standard format that most journals require and... Again, it's, a, it's, a, it's training in meticulous attention to detail. So if, if you submit a paper to a, a journal these days, for example, with referencing, they will have their standard format for, you know, there's thousands of ways you could reference, but, you know, it's usually the author's surname first and then either initials or Christian names, and then the date of year of publication follows next, and that can have a bracket around it or a full stop, and a full stop or not. And then the title of the paper, uh, and that can be in you know all caps or they can have organism names italicised or not. And then the journal title can be a title or an abbreviation. Uh, the volume number, issue number, and the page numbers uh, are what's at the end. And the punctuation and every, you know every every one of those elements can vary enormously. If you vary one iota from the journal's prescribed referencing system your paper usually is sent back to you. <laughs> right, so you have to have an attention to detail in the, in the uh, writing as well as attention to detail in the, uh, the botany and the uh, biology. Stephen, are you a morning person or an evening person in terms of writing? Do you write late into the night or do you get up at five o'clock and, and go? Or is it, uh, how long would a day be for you? 
Oh, well, these days I do both. I am a morning person by nature, so I happen to, to live a good beach near Albany and uh, my wife and I love to walk and swim early in the morning often. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll wake up. Uh, I often wake up with ideas, actually. <laughs> I don't know what happens while I'm asleep, but anyway. And uh, that, will, that will be a trigger for me to get up and just get it down while it's, while it's fresh. I, I tend to be more of a when the inspiration comes writer than someone who does, you know, two hours a day or whatever. I just would find that tedious and unproductive. So it depends when the inspiration comes. And <laughs> sometimes it comes in the, the dead of night. Uh, sometimes it's first thing in the morning. Sometimes it's in the middle of the day. Go with the creative flow. Was, uh... Uh, exactly. I mean, despite the rigour and attention to detail, science is, is an art form as well as a, a, something that's focused on uh, testable and falsifiable hypotheses. And so how you phrase uh, things, how you, how you write things, you know, there are nuances that immediately tell you he's a, he's a, a good writer using plain English. You know, often is is a challenge and is a discipline that uh, can can be taught, and you know, for other people it just comes naturally. The next question is one you can take any direction you like. The pathway that you've gone through from a curious child to uh, science education, honours, PhD, to running two of the world's best institutions in taxonomy. The question is, is it a good life? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Because, I guess it's because that childlike curiosity has prevailed and persisted. So I still get a kick out of, uh, a real kick out of coming across something that I think is new in the bush. <laughs> and that's still happening. And you know, I just uh, as recently as a couple of months ago, I only became aware that I'd discovered a new species literally two kilometres away from where I live on Tundira Peninsula near Albany. <laughs> And, and that's with the help of a taxonomist expert in the group of plants that this new species belongs to. So, I, yeah, mm. I, I just think it's it's that there is a, a degree of satisfaction to know a group of organisms well enough, to know their taxonomic history well enough to be able to say, oh, this is something that I don't believe anyone else has, has named before. It's discovery... Uh, it's it's a form of discovery fundamentally, and to me that's that's uh, one of the the great thrills of science to to make a contribution through observing something new. In a recent ABC uh, survey, Australia Talks, seventy percent of people said that they would be happier if they spent more time in nature. You've had quite a lot of time in nature, and would you also answer the question in that that you could still have more time? Uh, well, I, I, I'm fortunate enough to look out my window and, and see bush. <laughs> so where we live is a very small suburb uh, with a city reserve on one side and a national park on the other. And also I can see straight through to the Stirling Range 90 kilometres away <laughs> on a clear day. So it, it's just a, a remarkable landscape that I live in. And uh, I think Australians are uh, really fortunate that that we retain sizable patches of bush. The bush is under constant pressure. You cannot but be drawn into conservation issues if you have this this love of uh, love of both taxonomy, but love of just the outdoors and um, enjoying the splendours and delights of discovery that that um, wild things offer. Just moving on to your experience with Kew and Kings Park and the importance of the institutions, what support do the institutions like Kew and Kings Park provide to a taxonomist and what, what does it take to build those sort of institutions around the capability? Well, Kings Park's taxonomic capability is, is modest. We're set up to house the State Botanic Garden in Western Australia in Perth, but also and was originally set up to conserve a thousand acres of bushland in the heart of the city on the most prominent hill that overlooks the CBD, you know, just a kilometre away from the CBD. So quite an extraordinary landscape as well. I went for um, a delightful early morning run there last time I was in Perth. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I used to, when I was there for the 
dozen or so years, I used to walk at, at lunchtime and through the bush, uh, through the through the botanic garden, through the parklands. So it offers uh, tremendous recreational opportunities and you know the green lungs of the, the city essentially. Mm. <clears throat> um, so as a support for taxonomists, its its greatest uh, contribution perhaps is through the horticulture. So that live plants can be grown there and a, and a rich diversity. It has a, a focus on uh, the native plants of Western Australia in, in its horticultural program and gardens. So taxonomists can work with Kings Park and have their plants grown out. You can compare seedling seeds, a seed morphology, seedling stages, and then um, juvenile plants as well as adult plants grown in a common garden situation. So the very powerful aid to discriminating new new things um, mm. that is often followed. Q was, I was there when we celebrated 250 years for that institution. It's got one of the largest collections of herbarium specimens in the world, over 7 million. One of the largest DNA collections now of plant life. The Millennium Seed Bank is part of Q, so the largest uh, wild plant seed collection in the in the world, the largest fungal collection in the world. It goes on and on. So Q has, has played, going back to the days of the hookers, father and son, who were successive directors of the place, it's provided leadership in taxonomy. Coming out of uh, days of the British Empire, when Joseph Banks argued to King George III that plants in the colonies offered potential economic revenue to the empire he obviously had in mind and q played a critical role in major commercial crops like coffee and tea rubber quinine coming from chinchona plants that sort of thing so q was was and is and has been up until relatively recently perhaps even now it's recovering really funded to have a global perspective to play a role in the in the pure science of taxonomy and describing things and being a source of information. But uh, virtually from the outset from Joseph Banks, it had this other role of applying that knowledge for human benefit, uh, mm. economic benefit, but also medicinal uses and uh, all that sort of thing. So Q is, was much stronger, if you like, than Kings Park in the size and scale of its collections and in this rich history of exploring the plant world for human benefit yeah that sense of human benefit as a the economic botany as a driver uh is important one is that is that a driving motivation still for governments and philanthropists and uh, is that a significant part of the argument that you need to make to fund an institution like that to some extent but much less so arguably the you know the major crop plants and uh, medicinal plants have already been discovered but um, that's not to say with changing environmental circumstances that new crops and new medicinal plants that currently aren't exploited commercially may well be important in the future so that that option remains open with the sort of work that Q Q does. Q since uh, about the 1980s adopted rather than economic botany, uh, conservation as its primary focus because it was recognised then that plants were in trouble in some many places in the world and um, something needed to be done. So playing a role in ensuring that not only do we know through taxonomy the species that are out there, but we, we set up systems that conserve what is there to the best of our ability was a driving motivation until about six years ago when um, there was a re- reversion to in policy to um, Q being a, a repository of knowledge about plants and the management of the day had reverted to the view that conservation is largely other people's business. In terms of the discussions that you might have with governments and philanthropists, how would you open that conversation to say, well, we need resources to run this institution. Are there particular approaches to a philanthropist that work? Yeah, it's put simply, it's it's the, the case that plants underpin a tremendous, uh, the, very, the very air we breathe and 
uh, a broad range of human activities simply wouldn't occur without plants and plant diversity. And, you know, it's sort of bleeding obvious, but a lot of people don't really make the connection. They understand we breathe oxygen. <laughs> they yeah. don't quite think, well, why do you need all this diversity? Can't just we have a few species of plants and, you know, they'll provide enough oxygen? Uh, short answer is no, that, that doesn't quite work. It depends on local environments. And some plants will do well in, in uh, certain places and, and die in others, you know, so you, you need a diversity of plants. And pla plants are used, as uh, we've talked about, in medicine, forestry, you know, timber products. Mm. If you think of musical instruments, think of building constructions, boats, you know, the mm. plants impinge on our lives right through to the present day. The cup of coffee you had this morning, the, uh, the food that you ate, yeah. you know, the plants are uh, supporting human life in all sorts of, all sorts of ways. And that rings, rings a bell with, with most people who have any semblance of a, um, an affection for nature. <clears throat> for hard-nosed economic rationalists, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a little harder to argue. But, you know, what surprised me uh, was, dare I say, Kings Park, Western Australia, is a, is a, is a state where still hard-nosed economic rationalism is uh, mainstream. Um, uh, it's not to say there aren't some really worthy conservation activities going on, but when it comes down to dollars and jobs, you usually have some sense of where an environmental dispute will go. So it's, it's pretty hard to argue the case often for, for biodiversity in, in those circumstances. When I arrived at Kew, I was amazed that the House of Lords, the Upper House of Parliament, was undertaking its third inquiry into systematics or taxonomy. Wow. Technical committees that it sets up, and taxonomy then was uh, regarded that highly that the, the parliament of the country chose to investigate it, and, and in part of that investigation was to make sure that taxonomy was adequately funded. Do you think we need a Senate inquiry into Australian uh, taxonomic capability? I, I would be delighted um, <laughs> if, if that ever eventuated in, in Australia. But the connection between the diversity of life and, and the richness of human life doesn't doesn't still hold sway anywhere near as strongly in Australia as, as it does in... I guess we're a perverse species, aren't we? I mean, the, the native flora of the UK is is 1,600-odd species. There's more species in Stirling Range National Park or uh, Fitzgerald River National Park <laughs> in WA in a single national park than, than there is in all of the UK. So, you know, the native flora is depauperate and that's why the Brits spend so much time with gardens and growing things from elsewhere and caring for things from elsewhere, rainforests and the like, for example. Whereas in Australia, we live in the richness. You know, that richness is just outside my window. <laughs> and I guess it's commonplace. Uh, and if you take don't know, it for granted. Yeah, it's, it's simply that. So the Australian government, could we as a country have some fiscal injection to get all of Australia's biology named? Uh, I think that would be getting all, all the biota named is, is a, a major challenge if you start thinking about some of the invertebrate groups, fungi, bacteria, it would require uh, orders of magnitude increase in funding. But we could do a hell of a lot, you know, with the cost of one or two jumbo jets injected into taxonomy, for example. And to me, it, it, we've got to get out of this, this system where biological information is looked at last with development projects often, rather than first. So in Western Australia, we have a thing called the Geological Survey. That was established in the late 1800s, and that now underpins the, the mining industry. You know, it established a, a rigorous science that mapped the, the rocks of the state and uh, formed an underpinning that enabled private individuals to work out where to prospect and develop mineral, mineral resource. A biological survey has never been funded comprehensively for WA. And, you know, when when a, a rich mineral resource, for example, is found, it seems to me that the first thing you should be doing is having a discussion about 
the environmental, biological and social attributes of the land in question alongside the mineral and mm. use parliament or whatever to make a judgment, the government of the day to make a judgment about is the mineral resource uh, worth developing or are the other concerns of more importance? What actually happens is that the biological and often social, you know, the Aboriginal concerns, um, the, the impacts on rural communities more broadly, are considered after massive investment has gone into proving up the mineral development opportunity. And mm. crumbs are thrown at the other, the other right. areas of genuine interest and concern, and you end up in dispute. So that's a great um, segue into the ideas of uh, of what makes a good life and, and the idea that humans are biological and some biological connections can be allocated out so that people develop a, a deeper appreciation. And uh, I think you've come up with um, some really rich ideas about totems. And I, I just want to explore there how you how that that connects to a uh, greater challenge of of appreciating biology uh, well i guess my career has ultimately been focused on can we devise sustainable ways of living with biodiversity and the announcement by iucn earlier this year about the number of imperiled species totaling more than a million was one of the most potent global examples of how Western technological societies, by and large, aren't doing very well in living sustainably with biodiversity. I've been it, it was a shock to me. <laughs> and uh, in terms of the, you know, a million species is a huge number for, uh, and that that intergovernmental panel on biodiversity and ecosystem services report really is the consensus opinion of biologists across the planet. You know, and it's it amounts to one in ten species uh, yep. on the planet is likely to become extinct within, you know, say a lifetime. And that, that that's really should be a wake-up call for a lot of people. It should be. I, I've worked in conservation all my, all my life, and so it was less of a shock to me because, you know, that's a, that's a huge number. It needs to be translated down to numbers that are relevant to the daily lives of people uh, around the world, but in Australia in, in particular. And... Um, I guess the the challenge is that it's not that we don't know how to live sustainably with biodiversity. In fact, first peoples, by and large, have worked that out a long time ago, particularly long-lasting cultures. Not that conservation was front and centre in their minds, but you know, relatively low numbers of people and uh, a direct reliance on uh, natural resources for daily living really followed that humans needed a diversity of uh, plants, animals, fungi, to sustain themselves. If Western technological society hasn't got it, and it basically comes down to uh, the fundamentals uh, of private ownership and a focus on in individuals and, and uh, wealth enrichment regarded as the, the driving motivation for their economies. We also benefit from isolating ourselves from ecologies because lions and tigers would eat us or there's, it's good to have a, a room where you can see the environment through your window and not actually be bitten by mosquitoes all, all day, I guess. Well, that, that's true, but uh, First Nations have got to live, live with those problems and achieve other ways of other other ways of uh, dealing with the, with those challenges. Clearly, um, infectious diseases aren't a part of biodiversity that <laughs> that uh, most people would want to preserve either. So it's it's not all biodiversity that is beneficial or helpful. Mm. Um, a lot of it, in fact, uh, has no known use, but it exists, and, and you know there are ethical and religious reasons for arguing that they have that right to live mm. as, as well. But you know, I take your point that um, I am sitting in a house with windows and <laughs> right now March flies and midges associated with a lake 
just 200 metres away, biting fiercely. I've been out in the bush. <laughs> so, yeah, we to live comfortably, um, humans modify their environment. So that's that's just part and parcel. That's that's fine. And we have extended our life expectancy by isolating ourselves from some of the stresses and challenges of uh, being dependent on agriculture and being you know subjected to predation and parasitism so uh, it's been good for humankind to to separate ourselves but the perhaps the moral suasion arguments the idea that a million species are becoming extinct is uh, something that seems strong to me yeah yeah i guess so i mean the separation complete separation you know i i just go spare <laughs> <laughs> and most most people actually live almost with complete separation in cities, you know. They, mm. If it weren't for the urban parks and the street trees and and the birds, and you know, there's a few few uh, reminders that uh, the world is more diverse than our species. You know, the the Armageddon movies that you that you see, you'll notice usually don't have plant life anywhere, and <laughs> and you know that that perspective. It's just unthinkable to me. I, I think it, uh, modify your environment so it's comfortable for human life. That's fine. I, I think uh, Gandhi, the, the nub of the issue, Gandhi summarised by saying that the world has enough resources for every man's need, but not for every man's greed. Right. And that's 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 the fundamental challenge. I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging chat with Stephen. Part two of this podcast will explore Stephen's relationship with totems. EcoConnections aims to connect a person to every species. If you haven't done so yet, get online and join up for free or pay your $100 and get EcoConnected. Or find a friend, get them to EcoConnect you and you can EcoConnect them.